Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, public health reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Most of the legislation passed by the Indiana General Assembly in 2017 took effect on July 1st. These new laws range from requiring minors to, well, to wear helmets on ATVs, legalizing baby boxes for unwanted infants, protecting prayer in schools, and allowing people with restraining orders to carry handguns without a license. In addition, there are those 45 taxes and fee increases that went into effect for the start of the new fiscal year. So this week on Noon Edition, we'll be talking with state legislators about new laws and taxes taking effect this month. Our guest this afternoon, Democratic State Representative Matt Pierce is with us, Republican State Representative Jeff Ellington, Brandon Smith, State House reporter with Indiana Public Broadcasting and co-hosting with me today. Both Bob and Sarah are off. Clara McInerney from Indiana Public Broadcasting as well. Claire, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Joe. So let's just begin and we'll just kind of go around the horn here and talk about those uh, increases. I, I think we've got to start with taxes and fee increases. That gets everybody's attention because that, <laughs> that affects everybody. July 1st, Matt, would you like to start maybe and, and talk about maybe some of those laws that are going to affect people the most um, from their pocketbook? Right. Well, I would say generally a lot of the fees that have gotten referred to in these reports are specialized license fees or things. And the, and the interesting shift in that is that there was a time when I think the legislature relied upon more general revenue. So we have income tax, sales tax. They would come in and then out of the general fund, you would pay for licensing of realtors or enforcement of particular regulations. And over time, as the pressures have gotten on those um, general fund monies, and there's not been really the will to do general tax increases. So instead what's happened is individual taxes and fees are getting um, increased on particular items. And in some cases, the people who would be paying the fees have asked for that so they can get faster service or mm -hmm. better enforcement or something. Now, the taxes I think got most attention obviously were on the roads because the gas mm -hmm. tax has gone up and there are registration fees there. And on that, I voted against that bill not because I don't think the case had been made that we need, um, you know, more effort on our road infrastructure, but I just didn't feel good about voting raising taxes that hit, I think, some lower economic wrong kind of people as opposed to the taxes have already been cut. So people might not know it, but we've been cutting the corporate tax each year and it's scheduled to continue to go down. And I know there are taxes that I think benefit the cuts mostly on the high end. And so I just didn't think it made sense to continue to lower taxes on one set of taxpayers while we're trying another set, you need to pay more so we can do a most basic thing that we do in government, which is keep your roads going. Brandon? Yeah, yeah the phrase you heard, and obviously the headliner of the taxes and fees, I mean, the 45 this year, is, it sounds like a big number, but, but over the last few years, you've seen not that many necessarily each session, but, but this is, a, a, like Representative Pierce talked about, it's a philosophical shift with the Republican leadership uh, and the Republican supermajorities, it's if you you know if you want a license, if you want if you're going to do a background check, if you want court records at the at the courthouse to pay for technology upgrades, well, we're going to charge you a fee for those copies. Um, that's it's it's the user fee philosophy, and that's actually the argument they made even on the gas tax, which is and it's perhaps of all the taxes that most Hoosiers pay, it's the easiest one to make a the so-called user fee argument on, which is you pay for the roads by paying for the gas you buy to drive on the roads. Um, the, the, the people who probably have the most gripe around that are folks who pay the diesel tax, because uh, if you're a really big truck or if you, um, uh, you know, I'm talking about really big trucks, or if you, you, you have a diesel vehicle that gets outstanding mileage, you're going to be impacted about the same as the average uh, driver does in the gas tax fee. But for those people who use a lot of diesel, for instance, I have a colleague who, whose husband um, does boat races and tractor pulls and stuff like that. I mean, he uses a lot of diesel fuels, not necessarily getting great mileage out of it either. That's the people that perhaps this is going to come down the hardest on. Um, and they're not really getting a lot of help otherwise. But for the most part, it's 
and and for the most I don't think I mean the tax went into effect July 1st I don't think most people noticed yeah, gas what, prices go up and down yeah, right. so much yeah how did you know? Oh, well, there was that ten cents from the fee. Mm-hmm. Is that how much it was? It was ten cents. Yeah, okay. yeah. Jeff, would you agree? I mean, are these kind of the main taxes and fee increases that uh, residents are going to see right now? Unless you're a business who deals with certain types of license issues and increases, and a few there, uh, the majority of people will see and notice. Uh, I don't know if they'll even notice right away, like we said, because when the sales tax went into effect uh, July first. The gas really didn't even move a penny. Mm-hmm. You know, some mm-hmm. places it may even went down. Uh, maybe that was because of the uh, the uh, supply and demand. Maybe there was not as many people going on vacation this July. Maybe they stayed home in the community, uh, which I think is uh, what a lot of people do nowadays. Um, but, you know, if you look back, uh, you're talking about a shift in Republican philosophy. I wouldn't say that's a shift. I would say it's probably a long learning curve over the last 10 to 12 years where the leadership of Brian Bosma, who has uh, instituted at least 12 tax cuts over different budget cycles. Those tax cuts, I even think with the help of Mitch Daniels, focused more on job growth, development, infrastructure investment in in, in Indiana, and the way those taxes were structured, it opened up those for more corporations or businesses to move to Indiana. You know, right now we're sort of pulling away uh, residents from uh, Illinois and Chicago. And with this rail corridor uh, going across northwest Indiana, you'll see that grow, I think, uh, expanding uh, quite uh, fast in the next three to four years because people's going to say, you know, look, they just raised Illinois' taxes, and why should I live here and pay, you know, ten times what I did ten years ago when I can move to Indiana and still commute to my job. So the, the, the way the Republicans did it was made a footprint and base for job growth. And they've transitioned to a user fee for those who use these services, which everybody believes that nowadays that is the fair way to do it. If you use it, you pay for it. And uh, I think that's what helped uh, put Indiana in the top of its class statewide and to the nation. And I'll, I'll just point something out. We talked about you probably didn't notice the <laughs> gas tax increase that went into effect. And it's going to – there are um, increases sort of programmed in for the next several years, capped at a penny a year depending on inflation and stuff like that. But – you, again, you probably don't notice that because gas prices fluctuate so much, particularly here in Indiana as opposed to some other places in the country. But something you probably will notice that was in that road funding bill is some fee increases and new fees at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. But you won't notice those until January because the way they do their cycle, um, it wasn't if, if they started at July 1st, well, then half of the people in the state would pay more this year and the other half mm-hmm. wouldn't. So that'll actually start in 2018 before you start seeing those fees go up at the BMV. And I think that this is the, kind of the basic argument on supply-side economics. Some people support it, some think it works, others don't. But the basic argument of the Republican majorities now is if you lower the taxes on corporations, um, you know, higher earners, that that will result in more economic growth and that in turn will bring you more revenue because you have more economic activity. And there are a number of us who question whether that's actually the way it's working out. But that's the argument is that you create this great business climate with low taxes and low regulation and all these great things happen. And I just haven't seen the, the people on the lower end um, really benefiting from that yet. And they'll be paying more um, to take care of our roads. Well, I want to get other people to be able to call in and ask a question, too. Uh, this week, our panel discussing Indiana laws going to affect this month. Let us know your questions, comments, 812-855-0811, or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. And you can also participate in the live chat by tweeting at Noon Edition. So let's move into another um, specific bill, House Bill 1071, which you both voted on. Um, It allows someone with a restraining order to carry a handgun without a license for up to 60 days. Brandon, do you want to kind of give us the overview of how this would look? And then we can kind of go into you know, how this might roll out? Sure. So um, first, it's, it's important to understand that anyone, um, well, not anyone, but but people can go out and buy a handgun right now and have it in their home. What you need a license for in this state is to carry it outside of your home. Uh, and the idea behind this bill was for people um, who are under what are called protection orders or restraining orders from a court, you often see these in the cases of, of domestic violence issues. Um, 
that someone under that protective order could carry their handgun outside of their home without getting that handgun license for up to 60 days because the idea was this is someone who the court has said needs a certain level of protection and the licensing process isn't immediate. And so the idea being that we don't want the gap created there uh, where they're waiting for the license but they need but they they're under this order and they need that protection the pushback has been from principally domestic violence at uh, you know uh, victims groups who say we don't want to inject more guns into these situations even in the hands of the victims because more often than not um, any gun in that situation is going to end up being used on the victim even if it belongs to that victim and so, Representative Ellington, did you vote in favor of this bill or against it? Voted in favor. Okay. And so what was your reasoning to want to see this into law? Well, um, from personal issues I had with my parents when I was a kid, um, domestic violence was in my home. And, um, and I think that uh, empowering those domestic violence victims, those who uh, are able to possess a firearm legally, that maybe cannot get that firearm quickly enough through a permit process. It gives them 60 days. And during that time frame, they still have to apply for a permit. Okay. So if they have a felon or things like that, I think this, this exempts them from that. So they will not be able to do that because you can't override felony and, and hand use. So that was my reasoning, was my personal belief that, you know, at some point uh, there's things that happen during uh, domestic violence that you cannot predict, whether it's mental instability or the heat of the moment. And I want to uh, give those domestic violence victims uh, some protection. Now, the average domestic violence victim, are they going to go out and instantly just apply for this and purchase a gun? More than likely not. But there may be someone at home who feels that uh, they, they are either qualified or they understand, um, you know, that once you pull a gun out, you, need to, you, you better be prepared on the use of that gun and the force it implies. Uh, so there's a lot of people that this will not, uh, they won't go out and get a gun because it just won't fit their mentality or their experience with those types of items. But it doesn't, does it require any training or anything like that for those purchasing the gun or carrying it? I, you know, I would hope that common sense would prevail if you go out and purchase a gun. I mean, I know there's, uh, you know, with political firestorms have been happening with the last few pre presidential elections, you know, a lot of people say, I'm going to go out and get a gun. But, you know, I hear from my friends that they said, you know, I'm going to go out and get a gun, but I'm going to go get training so I know how to use it because they understand that a, a gun in the hands of someone who does not know how to use it is it's, it could be deadly. So, Representative Pierce, what was your your vote and your reasoning yeah, on I, this particular one? I, I voted against the bill because the people who are advocating on behalf of um, survivors of domestic violence. So they just thought putting a weapon into that situation is going to have a bad outcome. And I and I think because of the psychological d d dynamics of the relationship it's a little less likely that the um, person with the gun is actually going to use it. I think it's more likely it's going to get taken away. And so you really just have an additional element of danger injected in as opposed to protection. And I think that what really, really was going on with this bill is it's part of a kind of a bigger movement because there are supporters of Second Amendment rights who feel there should be something called constitutional carry. So the argument is, well, if the Second Amendment of the Constitution gives you a right to have weapons, to bear arms, then there really shouldn't be any restrictions on that. You shouldn't have to get a permit if you want to carry it around with you, and you should be able to have them. And they would like to have the states pass laws that essentially say you can carry, have a gun and carry it anywhere you would like, anytime you want, and that's your constitutional right. And so what they're doing, they haven't been able to win the day on that argument yet, and so what they're doing is they're beginning to kind of pick away at it. So the more areas where they can say, you know what, you can go out and get this um, – you know, gun without a permit, that's another thing they can put on a list. And then eventually you might get to a point where you have so many exceptions that people say, well, we might as well just go ahead and get rid of the permits altogether. And it's important to note that this is not necessarily Representative Pierce's reading or opinion. Of the, I mean, if you talk to, including the supporters of this bill, mm -hmm. um, uh, pe people who were behind the, its authorship, 
they are very clear that that is exactly what they want, um, particularly Representative Jim Lucas, who's um, one of the leading uh, gun rights uh, lawmakers in the state house. He doesn't believe we should have licenses for guns. And he has authored legislation to make that the case uh, that has so far not gotten anywhere. But they are going to have a, a pretty expansive study committee this summer and this fall on that very topic that sometimes those lead to legislation the following session. Sometimes they don't. But they are going to take a hard look at that topic and potentially look at uh, legislation next session on that very issue. The numbers to call one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. That's eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also participate on our live chat by tweeting at noon edition. We're talking about Indiana laws going into effect this month. One that just kind of popped out at me on this sheet, and I saw some national news on this is the use of drones. Um, especially in the, in the wildfires out, is it in Arizona right now that that's going Colorado on? Colorado too. I think. In Colorado, where they're they're having to remove uh, firemen and people because people are mm-hmm. driving their or flying, I should say, flying their drones. Uh, but Indiana is starting to pick up on this, and can you maybe give us a little bit of background on on drone regulations? I'm seeing them just looking up. All you got to do mm-hmm. is look up, and you'll see some. Indiana passed um, some drone regulations, uh, more expansive, broad regulations a year or two ago, I think, as as these were sort of emerging and as we saw the federal government start to to, to sort of open the doors to ownership of that. Um, this year's specific legislation is really closing a loophole in state law. And I'll mention this in, a, in addition to another bill that th- this is the sort of legislation we see a lot of times. This is not unique to this session. Um, basically, your your average peeping Tom laws or sexual harassment laws mm-hmm. wouldn't technically have applied to the use of drones. So if, if you know someone could make the argument, but a court wouldn't necessarily go along with it, this makes it very explicit. If you use a drone to, to spy on someone, uh, to harass someone like that, that's now illegal too. It was it was probably intended to be, but you needed to make the law more explicit. So that's what this year's legislation did. Similarly, again, I kind of wrote these two together because it's it's sort of looking forward before a problem has arisen and trying to identify a, an area, a loophole in state law, and, and close it. Um, there was a child pornography statute uh, that got changed this year to to say that it because pre-existing law said. In order for that to be illegal, you had to possess it. Well, on the internet, when you're streaming a video on some website, it's a lot harder for a prosecutor to make the possession argument. You didn't possess that video, you merely watched it. And that's not necessarily illegal in Indiana up to July 1st. Now it is. Um, and now it's, it's merely viewing that, merely streaming that on the internet is now also illegal. So this is one of those situations where we didn't necessarily have a problem. Somebody didn't come to a lawmaker and say, this happened to me and we need to make this illegal. Yeah. It's we're looking at our laws and saying, OK, that's an obvious gap. Let's close that before we have the problem. And that's so that's a, a pair of laws in that area. And, that, and that's the side of the legislature that a lot of people are not aware of, mm-hmm. is there is this interesting dialogue between the courts and the legislature, and particularly the sure. Court of Appeals, because the Supreme Court can't handle all the cases. So a lot of it's Court of Appeals, and they'll have a case like this, and someone will be um, convicted of voyeurism, and they've used a drone, and they'll get in there and say, well, if you look at the statute and read it word for word, this doesn't really fit that category. And then the Court of Appeals will say, well, yep, he's got a point. So no crime here because the legislature has not written it broadly enough to encompass that. And they'll basically say, we got to read the law the way it is now. And hey, legislature, if you don't <laughs> like what we just did here, you can go ahead and fix the law next time. And so we have a lot of bills to come through where we're adjusting things to clarify and tell the courts, no, we really meant this. This is the way we want it handled. And that's kind of the housekeeping stuff that um, people don't see. Or, or you read about it, and it looks like it's some big new change, but it's really just a lot of tweaking. Yeah. What, what, what are some of those other housekeeping or tweaking laws that you worked on, maybe perhaps this session, that, that you're proud of, Jeff? Well, I don't know if mine was house tweaking, but uh, <laughs> my, uh, my first bill I, I uh, put up and then passed was uh, House Bill 1019. It was sponsored by Merit and Spit Senate. It was a opiate bill, uh, deals with synthetic opiates, mm-hmm. uh, products that up until – you probably can still go on the Internet right now and probably purchase them. I, and I, for the life of me, I just cannot see how those products make it through our delivery systems, you know, because you always hear about uh, stops of marijuana and other products, you know, through the U.S. mail or postal service or FedEx or what have you. 
Uh, but it seems like I don't hear very often about those kind of stops or busts uh, for synthetics. It deals with the U4700, uh, which is a fentanyl-based product. Uh, then there's another one. You know, the initials are like BMPA or something like that. Uh, can't even pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, very deadly. We've been dealing with deaths not only here in Bloomington from this product starting two years ago, but across the nation. And it puts it on the scheduled controlled list. Um, so that's one little thing I was proud to get accomplished. You know, there's... There's more than just making those kind of laws. You know, the governor just is, uh, announced uh, yesterday or day before yesterday mm-hmm. about the uh, treatment facility here for uh, Bloomington and other uh, communities throughout Indiana. And, and there's much more we need to do. But I'm proud of that bill. Uh, it was real, you know, just went right through. And the fact, everybody said, oh, it's going to be tough. I said, you think so? <laughs> I don't, this bill just it did, did it on its own. Mm-hmm. So. And that's something important to note, too, um, to that point, which is uh, – the, I don't remember the number you gave, Joe, for the number of laws that were passed this session, but it's hundreds uh, of bills each year that make it through the process out of nearly a thousand that are written. But um, the vast majority, the vast majority, are overwhelming approval, where it's either unanimous or there's a, mm-hmm. a stray no vote here and there mm-hmm. from 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 you know for one reason or another. But you know when you hear about the the partisan bickering and, 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 you know, the divide at the federal level. And while certainly there are disagreements that – sharp disagreements at times that happen here in Indiana, the vast majority of the work they get done in the three or four months each year that they're at the state house, it's bipartisan, sometimes bipartisan authorship, and it's overwhelming approval in both chambers. Another one we wanted to talk about, and I think this will – be interesting to a lot of people was House Bill 1200 that requires children to be wearing helmets on ATVs. We guys talk about um, how how this will be enforced because most people that have ATVs, I'm sure it's on private land and you know they're doing it for recreation. So I don't know who wants to start with that one. Well, I, I think the enforcement you'll probably see, unfortunately, after there's an accident, yeah. if they determine that somebody wasn't wearing the helmet, that um, then there'll probably be you know a ticket written or something. Or I suppose if the law enforcement can see on the private property from the road in plain sight that something's happening that violates the law, they, that might happen there. But as you know, the, the ATVs, you know, they're fun for a lot of people, but, you know, they are dangerous, particularly as people, you know, try to go up these steep grades and stuff. And particularly, you know, kids we know, we don't re- I think science has proven that you got to get into your mid-20s before the part of your brain that really perceives danger and makes good judgments about it is fully formed. And so, you know, you put a 14, 15-year-old on an ATV and say, go and have some fun, you know, the, the idea is the helmet might protect them a little bit because maybe they're not going to, you know, use the most prudent judgment when they're out there riding. And importantly to me, um, because you talk about, I don't think the average 13, 14, 15-year-old is also going to care about some law that lawmakers passed that tells them to wear a helmet. But importantly, it's not just that person who might get a ticket or, you know, it's also the owner of that ATV. They can be, they can be penalized as well if they're letting someone underage ride without a helmet. So that's it kind of goes at it from both angles to say, we really don't want you to do this, and we're going to try and hold everybody who could be responsible responsible. And you got to remember also that um, you know there was always already restrictions for uh, minors for motorcycles to wear helmets, and uh, usually uh, either riding with someone who's been a motorcycle rider for years, like your parents, or maybe an older uh, sibling. Um, motorcycles are, are not quite as dangerous as uh, ATVs uh, because there's a lot of kids that just they, you know you got. That's a lot of power for a miner to be running through the woods, and it's not going up probably steep hills. It's hitting a tree or another vehicle, you know, coming around a corner head on head. And uh, this is and, – and it exempts agricultural use. You know, we had the farming community come to us and say, you know, my kid, he goes out and feeds and waters the cattle every morning, or he change, changes the gates at the, you know, the farm, and he wears his – uh, he doesn't wear his helmet because he's always getting and stopping and going. He's in a hurry, and it's just on our farm, and so we exempted that. So, uh, you know, they still have to be careful even when they're doing farming work, but uh, that helped protect the farming community. And I talk about laws that, that were overwhelmingly passed. This isn't necessarily one of those, and it was interesting. It wasn't a Republican versus Democrat divide on that. It was some within the Republican caucus in both chambers who voted against it, and it was from the the sort of, I guess I'll call it the personal responsibility 
um, uh, argument, which was, we don't need to be making a law to do this. If people are responsible, they'll do this on their own, and we shouldn't be requiring. It's the same sort of folks who, who perhaps disagree with the statewide smoking ban, mm-hmm. or who still, I know there are some folks at the state house who still disagree with the mandatory seatbelt law, that this is not the government, this is not the government's job to be requiring this sort of thing. But I think more Republicans, when this deals so specifically with children, with those under age 18, felt a little more comfortable saying, you know, this is something we've got to make sure. Well, we have to take a break right now, and it's 250 laws. I don't know if that's the exact number, but that were created and passed uh, by the Indiana General Assembly during this recent legislative session, took effect July 1st. Uh, We'll take a short break. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. We're talking with state legislators about the new laws and taxes taking effect this month. Democratic State Representative Matt Pierce is with us, as long as well as Republican State Representative Jeff Ellington. Brandon Smith, State House reporter and co-hosting with me, Claire McInerney from Indiana Public Broadcasting mm-hmm. is with us as well. Uh, right before the break, we're talking about infringing on uh, cities or, or, or counties, state law. Uh, how much do you grapple with that throughout the legislative session? And then I'll let Claire go ahead and jump in with maybe an, an, mm-hmm. another law. But I think that's something that's been kind of an issue here, especially in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I have a pretty firm opinion on that because even because you might be referring to the annexation provision that kind of wiped out the annexation down here and to me there you kind of have a process issue and then you have the substantive issue and I think they're very different but what really bothered me was um, that provision had never been debated in any committee or was in any bill it just showed up at the last minute in the budget bill and the budget bill is pretty much a take it or leave it thing because the majority party knows for the most part you got to vote for it because if you vote it down then you got to have a special session or some certain things happens and so um, you know, whatever's in there is going to become law. And so that the using that particular vehicle to do that bothered me. But the other thing is there have been more and more bills, and Brandon might be able to talk to this a little bit, that have come across that preempt local government. So whenever a business or some particular group sees a community out there somewhere doing something that they don't like, they will come to the legislature and say, take that power away. And uh, we've been debating more and more of those um, types of bills. And, uh, you know, whether it's regulating Airbnbs or Uber or, you know, a whole host plastic of other bags. things. Oh, yeah, plastic bags. Yeah, plastic bags is one from a couple years back. So that, uh-huh. that, you know, and that's a philosophical question. I mean, some people say, hey, look, we kind of own the local governments because we created them. You know, the counties are in the Constitution, but the cities and a lot of these other units aren't. We created them so we can decide what they can and can't do. Other people say, hey, you know, they're elected to, we should give them the leeway to experiment, to do things. And if they do something that's really terrible, they'll be thrown out, you know, by their mm-hmm. voters. So, Jeff, do you struggle with that at all throughout this session? Well, I think there's always a fine line. There's a fine line that um, when the Constitution was set up in Indiana, what parameters were there? Um, how was your property looked at? Your your rights to your property how was your rights as a small business person? Back then it was pretty much farming and probably timbering and cabinet making and things like that. You know, that market's changed, uh, but those basic rights to be able to, uh, to understand and know what your business reality is from county to county within that state, within that constitution. So it's right that the, you know, the lawmakers, when we first set up the, when they first set up the constitution is based upon certain uh, foundations 
and gives the cities and towns that foundation to work with, with these rules and laws. And I believe it's up to us when a city, town, or even county oversteps that bounds and starts infringing upon uh, those rights with properties, those rights as an individual, those rights as a, a religious facility, those rights as, uh, you know, a, the Second Amendment, uh, those rights uh, of making sure that all of our cities and towns and counties' borders have equal uh, rules and regulations concerning commerce. You know, when we, when we change those rules and regulations that impede state to state, that's against the law. So to me, that's why representatives and senators step in at some point and say, we need to make a correction. You know, maybe we didn't think about this, and maybe we should, uh, because it is a concern. I think we hear that that talk about the fine line, and I think for, for some lawmakers it really is. But I think the, the, the very clear line, and this is true for both sides of the aisle, the line is whether you agree with the policy or not. Um, there are plenty of, plenty of Democrats who supported the statewide smoking ban, which is a local preemption, um, who didn't, for instance, with Representative Pierce, who didn't support the, the plastic bag uh, bill. Uh, there are some who, who supported the Uber bill a couple sessions ago who didn't support the Airbnb bill. Again, both sides of the aisle. It, it's not Republicans who do this or Democrats who do this. It's both. It's each lawmaker decides, well, I'm in favor of that issue, so I'm going to go along with this. But I'm not in favor of that issue, so I'm not going to go along with this or vice versa. Um, so I, to me, the, the cynical reporter at the state house, it's really more about <laughs> it's really more about, well, it's not about, you know, I'm going to, one day a lawmaker is going to go along with local control and the next day they aren't because they agree with an issue on day one and they don't agree with an issue on day two. If you have a, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, if anyone listening has any questions about new laws or want to ask a question of our lawmakers and Brandon, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9300. For a, or send us a tweet. We are at Noon Edition. Um, another bill I think that was pretty notable was 1024, which protects prayer and religious expression in schools. Why was this necessary with First Amendment rights intact? Well, I voted against that bill. It was... <laughs> It, it kind of started out as one thing and morphed, but basically it was uh, actually authored by a by a Democrat who mm-hmm. very strongly felt that if we had prayer in school, a lot of society's ills would would not be upon us. And you know, I've heard that um, argument from other people as well. And then, I, and on the other side of that, you have this idea of like, do you want your schools to be kind of a neutral kind of place, or do you want to risk kind of crossing this separation of church and state? And that's a really huge, big argument. But what they tried to do at the end of the day with that bill is really not um, plow new ground as much as just kind of make themselves feel good by passing a code, putting into the code, here are your rights, right? Because the the U.S. Supreme Court since the 60s has been taking all these cases and they've been telling the schools, here's what you have to allow for religious expression in schools, here's what you can't do that might be considered establishing religion. And over time, over 30, 40 years, we've got a pretty good idea of, from the courts of where the line is. And so what they try to do at the end of the day is kind of take those court decisions and codify them in Indiana law. And um, while you could look at it and say, well, how's that going to hurt anything? I think what unfortunately it can do is it can kind of muddy the water because the writing in the code may suggest a little different right than what the courts have said. And so what I think you're going to see now Um, as this law is in effect, is a lot of lawsuits that our schools are going to have to defend. So if a student feels that their religious expression has been infringed upon, they're going to say, hey, not only do I make an argument about the U.S. Constitution and free expression of religion, but I can also make an argument about this statute that's in the Indiana Code. And you're going to have, I think, some confusion sorting that out, and it's going to end up costing our schools some money to defend all those lawsuits. So I, I didn't think it was a very good idea to put that into the code. I want to talk a little bit more about potential lawsuits in that situation because we've had the ACLU saying that this could put school teachers and administrators at that risk. Um, How do you think teachers or, I mean, especially teachers because they're at the classroom level, will be regulating religious speech or? Well, I just think that what will happen is if, if a teacher or an administrator in a school makes a decision that a student or a parent feels violates their right of religious expression, they're gonna, 
maybe say, hey, you know, now I've got this new state law that gives me rights, and so I'm going to sue the school and say you're not following state law and you have to allow me to do this particular thing I want to do. And now you're now the courts and the lawyers are arguing about a whole different set of law that even if it's intended to kind of parallel the constitutional arguments and what the federal courts have said, you'll get these subtle differences, and I and I think it will will muddy the water. I, I would think, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer or an attorney, but uh, basic common sense would say that uh, with your religious views, if you exercise that right in school, they have certain guidelines and standards that are acceptable in all religions. So if you have someone that's really pushing the envelope uh, and it's over that, I think that those schools will be protected because it's beyond what is normal. So I, I just don't see a lot of lawsuits, uh, true lawsuits being driven by this. Now, you, you'll, you may see political lawsuits to make political points, um, but I just, uh, unless I'm wrong, I think if, you, if you're average with your religious beliefs, uh, I don't think your rights will be taken. Well, in schools out right now, so this is not something that uh, school right. will start in September and all of a sudden everyone goes back to school and there's going to be a, a change. Like we're talking about July 1st, the gas tax mm -hmm. went up. A lot of these are just codified things in the state law. And again, as Representative Pierce point out, pointed out, um, this is really just putting into law what is already happening for mm -hmm. the most part in our schools. Right. I mean, it, it's very clear that a school can't in, tell its students it has to, that they have to pray. You know, a public mm -hmm. school can't be doing that. Right. But that's not what this law says either. It mm -hmm. says that students should be allowed to pray in the school setting, uh, that in their homework or in their their classwork or whatever, they can they can express their religious beliefs. So if you had a, a writing assignment or something, you could do it on your religious belief if it fit mm -hmm. the, you know, obviously the assignment. That's the sort of thing we're talking about. And again, it, it, it really just sort of tries to mirror what is already existing practice, but some worry about putting existing practice into very specific legal language and what that might do. 877-285-9348, the number to call. Um, I wanted to ask uh, really quick about if anything has changed with driving and texting, phone calls. Did, I, did anything change in regard to that? I don't think we addressed that because we already have a statute in the books from several years ago. And so I think that the focus there is just on um, really education more than anything. I mean, when that law was passed, I mean, I think even law enforcement said it's going to be difficult for us to really be able to enforce this because there are so many other things you can be messing with your phone while you're driving that aren't that isn't texting because we have so yeah. many apps. But um, I think that the purpose of that law really is it just kind of gives you an educational talking point to tell people like, you know, this is not a good idea. It's such a bad idea that we've made it the law that you shouldn't be texting while you're driving. And on the occasion where people are so like completely blatant or it can be proven, then you, you know, you might get your ticket. Similarly to the ATV helmet law. I mean, yeah. the reality is a lot of these kids who are, who choose to to still ride without the helmets probably aren't going to be caught in the act. It's, it might be after the fact, after an accident has happened. But uh, sometimes these laws are passed because you want to be able to tell people, hey, we passed this law, don't do this, you could be penalized. It's going to be hard to do that, but we aren't going to necessarily say that. Um, but we're hoping you don't because we passed this law. Yeah, and I, I think the seatbelt laws are like that. Like that. You know, I can remember mm -hmm. when we were kids, nobody ever wore a seatbelt, at least I, than I remember. They were there, but you didn't wear them. And then at some point, you know, I think with some nudging with the federal government, most of the states said, okay, you have to wear a seatbelt. And you know that probably the odds of you actually getting seen not wearing a seatbelt are pretty low. But over time, that message just kind of fits in, hey, not only is the law, but it's a good idea. And, you know, now I wouldn't think of moving my car without putting my seatbelt on. I would just, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it, would seeing... very, it would seem very dangerous, even though we did it all the time back in the day. Well, I, I, I think it, I disagree a little bit because it's a lot easier to get a seatbelt violation. I can tell you that from, yeah. from experience. Yeah. <laughs> and if that fifty dollars here, seventy five dollars there, I think really changes people's habit. And unless you start pulling people over for texting and giving them a ticket, that is only going to change. It's going to take that. So, I believe you know I spent twenty eight years at the fire department as a rescue tech and firefighter. Just retired last year, so you know I'm not. Supposedly they say double dipping. I'm like, you know, I work for that. <laughs> um, but um, that is really 
to me, with my experience, that is worse than drunk driving. Now, people will say, oh, that's terrible to say, but let me tell you, a drunk driver, depending on how they're reacting to alcohol, they'll either maybe slow down with a brake, then hit somebody, or they just pass out. With a texter, their head's in their lap, they're going 60, 70 miles an hour, they're going down 446 or 46, and it's head on, no brake. Mm-hmm. Entrapment and death. I've seen it. By the way, the city of Bloomington just re, uh, put in uh, hold pattern. There are two rescue trucks that, mm-hmm. that service the east and west side of Bloomington. So now those drivers, those vehicles are driverless. They put them on the, on the fire truck. So that's something else we need to talk about one day. And, and this, is, again, is a law from a few years ago. But that texting law was particularly difficult to enforce because it did not allow police to require you to give your phone to the officer. So they can't say, you have to give me your phone so I can prove you were texting. It's They can ask. And if a person doesn't know, they could say, oh, yeah, here you go. Um, and that's how you can get them. But they aren't required to do that, which makes it particularly difficult to enforce. So as the statewide education reporter, I kind of wanted to talk about one of the more notable things that I covered was we're now going to be appointing our state superintendent. And the law is in effect now, but it doesn't go, um, doesn't apply until 2025. But that was a big shift because we were one of the few states left that were electing the state superintendent. Um, so will you guys talk a little bit about what, you know, Jennifer, current superintendent Jennifer McCormick will uh, finish her term, and we'll we'll have one more. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but will you talk a little bit about how Indiana looks in the general landscape in terms of this, and how it compares to other departments? I don't know if you, you want to start, Representative Ellington. I want to say was that back in the mid '80s that mm-hmm. uh, the uh, governor was given, or the legislature were given the uh, option. Seventy, uh, seventy-two, I think. Seventy-two. Okay. Yeah. You know about. So they made they initially yeah. made that change back in the '70s, mm-hmm. uh, which gave them the authority to do that. Um, I will tell you that uh, being in politics since 96, you know, the the educational issue has been really partisan, especially in the last – it started maybe in in about 1996 pretty heavily. You know, know, every issue up there is is political, but I have really noticed that that office has been more political, especially during the last last, – four years before, mm-hmm. which was, I'd go to a chamber of commerce meeting, and then all I would hear was politics about this and this and education and, and nothing about, you know, what can we do to better it, you know, from a nonpartisan type issue. So I feel that this is this is a step in the right direction. It's going to take politics, I hope, out of uh, education. You know, education uh, locally is like 52% of the budget. Statewide, it's about 51 plus, not counting higher ed, which is about 14. That's a lot of tax dollars, and that should not be political. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there have been a lot of um, suggestions that we should appoint the superintendent rather than elect the superintendent going back several decades. And, uh, you know, the people who support the appointment, I think they feel that the governor should just be ultimately one held accountable for the education system. The governor now controls the state school board, which has a lot of power. So they say, why don't allow him to appoint his own person? And you have one single voice on education from the state school board, the state superintendent, and the governor. Well, particularly with kind of the radical makeover we're going through now with our education system, a lot of people say, well, we would like to have more of a say in it. Other than our elected officials in the legislature, we don't have much input on that when the legislature's not in session. And so when when we had the last superintendent of public instruction elected, uh, what happened is the legislature immediately attacked her authority, took as much power away, and that's when it became political because you had one person trying to express the will of the voters and what she felt they wanted to have done in education, which was diametrically opposed to what the legislature and the governor wanted to do. And so instead of kind of dealing with that voice and working toward compromise or or dealing with somehow, it was just kind of let's push that person aside. And so that's where we are today. Well, the Department of Education is a state agency. So how is it different than the Department of Motor Vehicles or any other state agency where that head is appointed. What, what's the difference in your head? Well, you, ha- you, have a, um, you have a statewide school system, and you have uh, policies that are affecting these things on a local level. Because the other thing that's happening, too, is, you know, it was a time where we said that education should be a local issue, that the local school board should decide what's best for their schools, and the local people should figure out how they want their education system to work with, you know, a few broad parameters from the state, and really it's been flipped on its head now. We're getting to the point where the locals are becoming kind of functionaries, and then the state and the federal government's deciding exactly what's going to happen. 
It's important to note here in this debate, though, that while perhaps the conversation ramped up again after the election of Glenda Ritz, Though arguably this bill would have been passed if, if, for instance, Republican Tony Bennett had won in 2012 instead of Democrat Glenda Ritz, I would argue this bill would have been passed in the 2013 session mm-hmm. uh, because it wouldn't have looked bad to ha- for Republicans in the legislature to make to under a Republican superintendent to make that an appointed position. This is a debate that goes back decades mm-hmm. and has been supported by both Democrats, Democratic governors, Democratic legislators, Democratic super, or state superintendents, and Republican governors and mm-hmm. legislators and state superintendents, including Tony Bennett. So it, it got politically divisive because, I think, of Glenda Ritz's election, but it didn't start that way, and I would argue it's really at its heart probably not that way either. So we're kind of starting to wrap up, but we do have uh, John from Bloomington who wants to weigh in really quick. John, are you there? Hi, John. Uh, we, two questions. One, really how quick. definitive was Cook Group's economic self-interest in uh, getting the annexation bill in the uh, conference committee and uh, who carried water for for Cook Group if they were uh, uh, very important in getting that uh, conference uh, decision. Second, how does uh, Representative Ellington see Hinduism as representing average religious values? John, thanks for your question. Uh, We're we're almost out of time. I'm going to go ahead and let you go. And Jeff, if you two want to go ahead and... Uh, answer that briefly. Okay. So um, Cook uh, was trying to lobby for their infrastructure on their side, which is, uh, I think most of it's in Richland Township, which is not even my district. Uh, I represented the people in my district uh, very hard uh, from the day session opened up, watching a bill in the Senate. And uh, when it failed, I put amendments on another bill in the Senate. Uh, one of my uh, amendments made it to the floor. Then it got yanked uh, by another senator uh, because they were concerned about their community. Uh, then I put an amendment uh, on a, another bill on the House side. It was ruled uh, non-germane, which I really thought it was, but I wasn't going to argue with the speaker because you don't win. You never win those. <laughs> um, but uh, So I worked very hard on this to try to get this accomplished. And I think if I use every tool in my basket – good for me and good for you. And uh, I'm not going to stop using my tools. And that was a good tool. As far as religious values, you know, the general rule of average religious standards within each religion, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the average religion. I'm just talking about those standards that the courts have set and and uh, uh, other types of religious individuals have said was uh, standard practice. So uh, not really saying everybody's normal or not, but uh, hey, I'm, I'm happy that my I took my voice, uh, not my voice, but uh, the voice of my constituents from the township trustees, and, and I'll say right now, <laughs> I wasn't going to say this, but I told uh, Matt this earlier, but uh, I ate uh, dinner uptown, and Mark Cruzan was sitting there, so I went to say hi to him, and I thought, boy, I'm going to really get a tongue lashing, but he looked at me and said, you're my hero, <laughs> and I said, what? And he says, yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to be annexed. <laughs> So, so I, so I, that made me feel a lot better. <laughs> well, just let me say, I wasn't in the back room, so I don't know exactly <laughs> what Cook um, Group might have done on that. But I can tell you that provisions do not end up in the budget bill like that from a member saying, please put this provision in. That's pretty high stakes. That really comes from people who are very involved in the political process and helping these majorities get formed. And they're the ones who have the power to make that stuff happen. John, I want to thank you for your call. Uh, just to kind of wrap up really quick, uh, maybe uh, Representative Ellington will start with you. You get maybe one minute apiece, but uh, give us one law that the media is not covering that you wish they would have that's going to affect people the most. I had uh, one bill that I helped on. It was actually by Heaton. It came through securities divisions in the financial committee. It dealt with investors who invest with, uh, whether it's stocks, bonds, or individual investors who do uh, hotel motels or some type of profit-type scheme uh, deals with uh, statute limitations. Uh, basically, it makes Indiana a safer place to invest now, whereas we had a downfall in 2007, 2008. We had people filing bankruptcy, you know, saving their own ship while others sunk, you know, poor mom and pops who give individuals their life savings. It happened here in Bloomington, and what happened here in Bloomington hit across the nation with one individual. And so my bill was from experience from that experience, and it passed, and now the statute of limitations expands beyond that.
Representative Pierce? Well, I would say two other provisions that got put in the budget bill in the last minute. One um, basically says the DOC can go out and get drugs to execute people without any oversight or approval of people in the medical community. And uh, that's pretty something big with little or no debate. And then also a provision that let Purdue go out and buy that online university and basically become a for-profit online provider. Again, no, no discussion, just dropped in that bill at the last minute. Brandon, what is something the media, what, what are you not covering <laughs> <Yeah>. enough? <laughs> I'm covering everything, Meta. Joe. I'm covering everything. No, uh, uh, there's, you said 250 plus laws every yeah. session. We, we get to as many as we can, but there's some that, that fly under the radar that hopefully over the summer and the fall you, you can find out and do a little more uh, digging on. All right. That's all the time we have for today for WFIU's Noon Edition. I want to thank our guests for joining us, Representative Matt Pierce, Representative Jeff Ellington, and Brandon Smith from Indiana Public Broadcasting, along with Claire McInerney. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very yeah, much for thanks, jumping in. For our producer, Angela Bautista, engineer Michael Cash, and I'm Joe Wren. This has been Noon Edition on WFIU. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.